Take your Bibles tonight and go to Genesis chapter 25, Genesis 25. Lord willing, we, uh, the Lord allows, we'll be starting a series in the book of First Thessalonians starting next Sunday, but I believe the Lord showed me something in my um, devotions this week that He just made clear throughout the week that He wanted me to share with you, and that's in Genesis 25. And so we'll read there in verse 20 in just, just a few moments, Genesis 25 and verse 20. You're familiar with the, the book of James in chapter 1 where it, when it describes God's word, describes the perfect law of liberty as a glass, as a mirror that shows us our natural face. It shows us who we really are. We, we look into it. We see, oh, that's me. And so God describes his word as a place where we go to, we look at it, and we see ourselves. And what we see in the mirror is not always very flattering. We were talking about this this morning in Sunday school, and I told the kids about one time a couple of years ago when we were at Allstate Choir, and... Of course, it was a, a, a really busy time on Saturday morning getting ready for the concert that they, that they did at the Capitol building, and they had asked a couple of us who were adult chaperones that could sing tenor to kind of insert ourselves with the choir to help with the balance, and so singing with the, with the young people, and of course, we had to get out of our hotels that morning. We had to be at the Capitol building at 7 a.m., so it was early, early to rise, pack up, get going, make sure we're there. And somewhere along the line, when I was getting ready, I remembered to, you know, start getting ready and doing a little bit of combing my hair. And then I took a handful of gel and I rubbed it in there. And for some reason, the next step of actually combing my hair, I forgot. Just went, I'm not sure what I was doing or whatever. I completely forgot. Packed up. Nobody said a word, so I'm not sure that means anything about, you know, my actual combed hair and how it looks. Um, nobody said a word until, I don't remember when it was, it was right before the con- uh, concert or it was in between two concerts. I went to the, the bathroom in the Capitol building and I washed my hands and I looked in the mirror. What? Wow. I saw something that I didn't exactly like. It wasn't flattering, um, but it showed me what everyone else was seeing, and I didn't see. And I didn't really have a whole lot of ability to fix it either, because <laughs> it hardened that way. And so anyway, it's a tough way to learn a lesson. But what we see is not always flattering, but it is the reality. And we need to see it, because that's the, that's the step, the necessary step that it'll take in order for us to address the problem that, that's there. And even Paul, you, you wonder how, how the Apostle Paul could say that when he would do that which is good, that evil is present with him. You remember when Paul said that? And I think one of the reasons why he said that is because in his walk with God, God was showing him that even amongst the, the, the exterior good things, there were evil motives. There were 
things that weren't quite right, and God was showing that to him. God was showing him some ugly reflections that still needed to be addressed in his life. And I think we see in that an illustration of what a healthy relationship with God's Word is like for the believer. If we have a healthy relationship with God's Word, He's going to bring us to points where we see the ugliness of our own sin. An unhealthy relationship with God's Word leads us to see the ugliness and the sin of everyone else. We see everyone else's problems and what everyone else needs to do and straighten this out, straighten that out. I know who this is for. That's an unhealthy relationship with God's word for the believer. But a healthy relationship brings us to the point where we can see our own sin and see it for what it is. The, the, the purpose of God's word is not as an informational book that we sort of master. You know, we learn all of the, the facts. Uh, we can spout all the, all the historical details. Rather, the Bible is to be a relational book. A book that leads us and, and God uses to challenge us on a regular basis. We might not enjoy seeing those inflections, but we understand and, and what we, you know, what's staring back at us. We might not enjoy seeing those reflections, but we understand how necessary they are for the process of becoming more like Christ. And we'll actually have a desire in our heart to see them. God, would you show me myself? Would you show me areas that that need to change? And what we're going to look at tonight, what we'll see tonight, is, is kind of an ugly truth. It's an ugly truth if we'll take the time to really examine it. If we'll allow the mirror to, to, to go really deep, to investigate our, our motives, investigate our hearts, and most of what we're going to see tonight, there's going to be a direct relation to parents, a direct application to parents and children. But really, what we'll see is a truth that impacts every single human relationship that we have. So let's go ahead and read Genesis chapter 25. We'll pick up in verse 20. It says, and when Isaac was 40 years old, or, and, and Isaac was 40 years old, when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, of Padan Aram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord was entreated of him. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived, and the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel. And his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau, because he did eat of his venison. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Lord, would you help me tonight? Help me not to just say the things that are on my mind 
but rather to seek your mind to say those things that you would want to be said. And Lord, I just need the direction of your spirit tonight. I pray that you'd open your heart, open our hearts to the truth of, of your word. Help us to understand and also see what you want us to see, that, that we would be challenged to be more like you. Bless this time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in Genesis 25, we uh, find the story of Isaac and Rebekah. And a couple chapters earlier through Abraham's leadership, <coughs> excuse me, um, God had miraculously led Abraham's servant to just the right individual for Isaac, just the right bride. And Isaac loved Rebekah, and it was her love that brought him great comfort after his mother Sarah uh, passed away. Um, and in this normal love story, we kind of expect you know, the husband and wife to live happily ever after, but... The problem was that Rebecca was barren. She couldn't have children. And for 20 years, talks about how in verse 20, uh, Isaac was 40 years old when he was married. And then uh, in verse 26, it talks about he was 60 when Jacob and Esau were born. So that leaves a 20-year period of time in which there were no children. And you can imagine, especially if you put yourself in that time, in that culture, the difficulties that that would have created, the, the stresses that that would have put on the family, and the despair when, what's going on? <coughs> what's happening here? But verse 21 tells us that Isaac took that issue to the Lord. And the wonderful part about this is, <coughs> excuse me, I'm going to need a cough drop tonight, that God listened to Isaac. He heard his prayer. <clears throat> and, they, and she conceived. And it wasn't just one child, it was two. Twins. And there was a special prophecy on their lives. This frog won't go away. <laughs> Going to need an interpreter. I'm going to start speaking in tongues soon. <laughs> God gave a Rebecca <clears throat> a special prophecy for these kids. <clears throat> Boy, can any of you read notes really well? <laughs> Might have to employ you. Both of these boys grew up and they were distinct and unique. Isaac was a man's man. He loved to be free. He loved to do whatever he wanted. Jacob the plain man, dwelling in tents. He describes himself as a smooth man, one who cared for the family and the family business. Now we get here to verse 28. <coughs> and verse 28 simply says, Isaac loved Esau. Isaac loved Esau. Now what could be more special than a father's love for his son. It's the right thing. It's the natural thing, right? The Bible even calls that natural affection. It's fitting. It's right. It's fitting. It's proper <coughs> for parents to love their children. It's fitting and proper for 
the family to be a place that is filled with love, you know, it's also fitting and proper for believers to love each other. It's right. The Bible says it's, it's good and it's pleasant for brethren to dwell together in unity. The problem, though, in our text is that Isaac's love was not all that it appeared to be. So let's examine that. Isaac's love, examine. The verse simply says, Isaac loved Esau. <coughs> and you know it's true. There's certain people that are easier to love than other people. There's certain people that you click with, that you kind of understand, that makes sense to you. It's true for people, and if you have more than one child, it's true for children, right? There's some children that (coughs) we kind of understand. Maybe there's your wife kind of connects with one, and you um, maybe connect with another one, just just personality-wise. It's easy for you to love the one and maybe kind of struggle with the relationship with the other one. Um, Of course, this would lead then, in Isaac and Rebecca's home, it would lead to favoritism. And that favoritism would have disastrous consequences down the road. The source of the favoritism is revealed to us. God actually opens the curtain a little bit, and he reveals why this is taking place. Isaac's love for Esau came down to one particular thing and the fact that they enjoyed the same they they had the same interest in <coughs> excuse me outdoor sports and recreation Isaac got that he understood that and that was a commonality that he shared with Esau his son but Isaac Isaac's love was not just because of a common interest that they had together that was not all there was Isaac loved Esau Because Isaac loved venison. And this is what really kind of opened things up for me when I was reading. I was actually reading Genesis 27. And if you want to just flip there for a second, notice how many times this is mentioned. Now, we can kind of speculate, okay, why did Rebekah love Jacob? The Bible really doesn't tell us. We might be able to draw some conclusions that probably... (coughs) would fit. But God does reveal something about Jacob's love and the dark side, or sorry, of Isaac's love and the dark side of Isaac's love. This love, he he mentions it in verse 5. It says, um, I'm sorry, it's not verse 5. Let's see. Verse 3. Thank you. It says, now therefore, take, I pray thee, weapons, and thy quiver and thy bow. This is Isaac to Esau. And go out to the field and take me some venison and make me savory meat. Notice the next phrase. Such as I love. So it's pretty clear. Isaac says, this is what I love. Then later on in verse 9, Rebekah says it. She tells Jacob. She overhears and she tells Jacob, go out to the flock, verse 9, and fetch me from thence to... Good kids of the goats, and I will make them savory meat for thy father, such as he loveth. Again. And then if that's not enough, verse 14, just a few verses later, it says he went 
and fetched and brought them to his mother. This is kind of like the narrator. This is really God summing the story for us, uh, summing up the story for us. He brought it to his mother, (coughs) and his mother made savory meat such as his father loved over and over and over again. Isaac loved Esau because Isaac loved venison. That changes the perspective of his love, doesn't it? But in reality, if we take a step back, Isaac loved Esau because Isaac loved his venison, and the real source of that was Isaac loved himself. So in reality, in truth, Isaac's love for Esau was actually a love for himself. Isaac's love was selfish rather than selfless. Truthfully, it wasn't love at all. It was lust. It was lust. Which is the exact opposite of love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Charity, love, seeketh not her own. So that means it is possible... For love to be the disguise of lust. For something in our lives that we look at and say, you know what, I'm doing good in this area. I am, I am loving, in this case, I'm loving my children. Or loving people in my life. And the whole idea of love is a mask that covers up the real motivation of lust. Love is often disguised and can be disguised in our lives as lust. We talked about how the mirror of God's word shows us some things that are kind of ugly about ourselves. This is an ugly truth that our love can often be a disguise of our own lust. Think about parents with your children. We can love our children because of the affection that we receive in response to how we serve them. We can love our children because of the emotional fulfillment that we hope to receive. We can love our children because we have certain dreams and desires that we want to see fulfilled through our children. And you can, I'm sure, think of The illustration of the father who wanted to be successful in the area of sports and was not able to do so. And so he is living vicariously through his his son. And in loving, in his mind, in loving his son, he is loving him in order to get something for himself. You know, parents, we ought not to love and invest in our children so that they become what we want them to be. That's a selfish desire. It's a lust. We ought to love our children. We ought to desire our children to be all that God wants them to be. I know there are times in which God's design for their lives may cut across the grain of what we want. We might want, we might have a desire for them 
to be successful. We might have a desire for them to be educated, to make a lot of money, to make a name for themselves in the corporate world, to win a lot of awards. And God says, I want them to minister in a place of obscurity. And it cuts across our desires. We ought not to love and invest our children so that they become what we want. We ought to do so in order that they might become what God wants. Amen. You know, we can love our children in order to receive, and here's the big one, and this is one where, you know, I can definitely see myself at times. We can love our children in order to receive the recognition of others. So that they can look at us as parents and recognize our parenting ability. Boy, they really did what was right. Look at those kids. They're all like ducks in a row. They must have done something right because of our parenting ability. We can love our children in order to receive recognition, recognizing our spirituality. Because my kids are spiritual, and that's because, you know, it's because of the leadership at home. We can love our children in order to receive recognition, recognition of our own skill, of our own intelligence, of our own ability. But you see, all these things come back to, I love so that I can fulfill a lust of mine. In this case, for Isaac, it was kind of a base sort of lust. I mean, we're talking about meat. I mean, I I do love some good meat, all right? I do love a good steak, but really? And God, I mean, we're not making a mountain out of a molehill. This is what God describes for us. This is what is taking place. He's, He's evaluating it for us. He's giving us the reason why. Isaac loved Esau because Isaac loved himself. And you know, God calls us parents to love our children. God calls us as believers to love each other. But we can be guilty of loving each other so that we receive something in return. And instead, we are proving that we don't necessarily love others as much as we love ourselves. And we're just using them in order to get what we want to receive. Even, all right, we're, we're being just brutally honest tonight. Even a love for souls and a love for evangelism can be a disguise for our lust for the praise of men. See all the people that I'm witnessing to? See all the Bible studies that I'm doing? Look at how that reflects on me. This is something that we need to be very careful of. Something that we need to take a good, hard look at ourselves. Because what we see as this text kind of unfolds for us, starting in chapter 25, is we've kind of looked at and examined Isaac's love. But I want you to notice Isaac's love is now reproduced in his children. Specifically, Isaac's love is reproduced in Esau. Isaac loved Esau because of what he could get from Esau. And so it's no surprise that Esau loved Jacob for what he could get from him. Not a big surprise that that takes place. Isaac loved Esau because of his own lust. 
So Esau followed in his footsteps and lived his life to fulfill his lusts. Really, the entirety of Esau's life is an illustration of someone who lives for their lusts. I think Esau is a caricature of what that means and what the impacts are. And we'll see that in just a little little bit. But notice how Esau then lived this out. In chapter 25, right on the heels of that, we, we get... And I believe uh, the reason why this is here, the story from verse 29 through 34, the reason why this is included right here is it, it, it gives us this picture and this idea of what Esau was like and what he lived for. And this is what God refers to in the book of Hebrews to describe who Esau was and what he lived for. And that, of course, is the, the um, agreement of sale between Esau and Jacob. Esau comes in after hunting, and he wants the, the, uh, the, the stew that Jacob is making. And J- Jacob kind of creates a deal that, unfortunately, Esau can't refuse. He really should have. But because he was someone who lived for his lust, he couldn't refuse the deal. And so we find that Esau rejects his birthright for food. He comes in verse 30. This is a phrase that stood out to me in the beginning there. Esau said to Jacob, feed me. Feed me. I have desires. And my fleshly desires are what is most important. I need to be fed. And that's what our, what our lusts do in our lives. They say, feed me. I need something. And you need to provide it right now. That's how lusts work, how they operate. Then he says, you know, once Jacob kind of um, gives him the deal, verse 31, sell me this day thy birthright, Esau says in verse 32, I'm at the point to die. What profit shall this birthright do to me? He says, this is not important. I don't care. I care about being fed. I don't care about this birthright, which, by the way, was what was part of the promise of God to Abraham through Isaac, eventually to Israel, which would lead, and lead to the promised deliverer, the, the leader of God's people. And Esau doesn't really care about that. He cares about his lusts, his desires. How can I fulfill myself and what I want? And so Esau rejected his birthright for food. And verse 34 summarizes it for us, the end of that verse. It just says Esau despised his birthright. And that doesn't mean he hated it, but it means that he was like, what do I care? What's the big deal? You want that? Sure. It's yours. Give me what I want. I don't care. That's the attitude that Esau has. Now, if you were to ask Isaac, his father, how important is the birthright? I think Isaac probably, if he was thinking straight, would, would say this is how important the birthright is. But see... Esau learned from Isaac's actions. Isaac's actions were, I love Esau because I love venison because I love me. And so Esau says, I love me too. Great, we have that in common. Birthright, who needs that? And he rejects the birthright for food. Then in chapter 26, if you want to scan down to the end of the chapter, we find Esau rejecting his parents for fulfillment. He takes to wife the Can- these Canaanite uh, women. And verse 35 says, 
which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and Rebekah. He rejected his parents' advice, didn't seek it in the first place, and I think there's a reason for that. He didn't ask for advice. We find in the very next chapter that Jacob asked for advice and Isaac gave it to him. Isaac gave him specific instructions about how to find the person that God had for him. Esau doesn't ask. He goes out to fulfill his lust, to fulfill his desires, finds someone, in this case more than one someone, and fulfills his desires with them. The book of Hebrews kind of reiterates this for us. In verse 16, it calls, Hebrews 12, verse 16, it says that Esau was a fornicator. Which leads me to believe there's a reason why he chose the women that he chose. There was a pattern of life. There was a lifestyle that he had established. So Isaac had a preference for how Esau, and it was the right preference. He wanted Esau to walk in the right way, but Esau wasn't interested. And I wonder if it was because, you know, I'm thinking out loud, I'm wondering if it's because the example that Isaac left unintentionally by his actions was that you love others so that you can love yourself, so that you can fulfill your own lust. That's just what you do. And that's what Esau did. He rejected his birthright for food. He rejected his parents for fulfillment. Hebrews 12, 16 also says that Esau was a profane person. The word profane means separated from God or rejecting God, ungodly. In other words, we could say that ultimately in the end, Esau rejected God. And I'm sure if we, even in this time period, could bring Isaac in and say, what do you want for Esau's life? It would not be, I want him to reject God. No, I don't don't believe that to be the case at all. But because underneath Isaac's love lay lust, and really that was the motivation for his actions and how he chose to live, Esau walked in his father's footprints and took it one step further and rejected God altogether. That's Isaac's love reproduced. And if that weren't enough, there's actually more. Let's look at Isaac's love and its effects. Because when lust, when lust masquerades as love, there are disastrous consequences. We already looked at the grief of mind in chapter 26. But think about this as, we, as the narrative now opens in chapter 27. We also see that Isaac became spiritually blind. As a result of living for his lust, there was a blindness. And I'm not just talking about the physical blindness that we see in this story. The physical blindness that Rebecca and Jacob took advantage of in their trickery of, uh, of her husband and his father, that was physical blindness. The worst part was the spiritual blindness that, that Isaac experienced. He knew the plan of God. You don't think Rebecca told him 
with this struggle going on in her womb between these two boys, you don't think Rebecca said, hey, I asked God what was going on, and here's what God told me. Very little chance that Isaac did not know what God's prophecy was when God said, the elder shall serve the younger. God made it clear what is, what is quoted later on. Esau, or Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And there was a reason for that. Isaac knew what God's plan was. And by this time in chapter 27, Isaac knew who his son Esau was. The birthright, the marriages, right? You get the idea. Yet he still is manufacturing a way to fulfill his lusts and his desires. Look at verse 1. It came to pass that when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called unto Esau his eldest son and said unto him, My son. And he said unto him, Behold, here am I. And he said, Behold, now I am old. I know not the day of my death. Now therefore, take, I pray thee, thy weapons, thy quiver and thy bow, and go out to the field and take me some venison and make me savory meat such as I live and bring it to me that I may eat that my soul may bless thee before I die. Why is this even necessary, number one? And I think it has a lot to do with, here's another chance. Here, I can kind of get what I want. I can give him what, I, what he wants. And we can circumnavigate God's will. I'm sure it'll be fine. Everything will work out. And I can still fulfill my lusts, my desires. Isaac's physical blindness was only matched by his spiritual blindness within. And most of you know the story. God overrules Isaac's choice and his decision. I think that's one of the reasons why later in the chapter you find Isaac, when he finds out what happened, what happened, he's trembling. He knew, I think, my my own opinion. But why else? He's shaking. Because he realized he tried to go around God and and God said, no, I already told you what I want. This is what I want. And you're not going to kind of get around that. So Isaac's physical blindness was only matched by his spiritual blindness within. And when we live, we make a pattern of allowing our lust to masquerade as love and not be challenged Eventually, it's going to lead to spiritual blindness where we don't, we don't see what, what God has clearly said and what ought to be as, as plain as something standing right in front of us. But of course, that's not the only effect, spiritual blindness. We see in, in the story, we'll not take the time to go through it all, but we see how, how this brought about deceit. And of course, Rebecca, she knows the promise of God and she feels the need to kind of trick her husband when she finds out what he's doing. Why are you doing this, Isaac? We've got to stop him. This is not what God wants. And so instead of leaving it to God, instead of trusting it to God, she decides to take it into her own hands and she calls Jacob and says, here's what we're going to do. And so she tricks her husband into doing what's right. And of course, you understand that two wrongs don't make a right. And Rebecca is not right in what she's doing. This is deceit. It is dishonesty. It is something that's going to tear apart, literally tear apart her home. 
She loved Jacob, and she's never going to see him again. This is it. And she has her own actions really to thank for that. So deceit was brought into the home. In verse 34 in this chapter, we see jealousy that's brought into the home. When Esau comes and finds out what happened, how they tricked Jacob into giving the blessing to Esau. He says in verse 34, when he heard the words of his father, he cried with great and exceeding bitter cry and said unto his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. Jealousy. In verse 38, we see a worldly sorrow. Esau says, Hast thou but one blessing? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. The writer of Hebrews Hebrews describes it this way. For ye know how that afterwards, when Esau would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. And the word repentance, I believe, is not he's not talking about Esau coming to repentance. He sought repentance from Isaac. Change what you did. Change the situation. Turn it around so that I get the blessing. He sought it with tears. And he said he didn't find it. Because those tears were just worldly sorrow. It was just, I'm sorry for my sin because, it, what it, because of what it cost me. Instead of being sorry for my sin because of what it, what it cost God. Because of how wicked it is. Worldly sorrow. All of these are ramifications because Isaac allowed his lust, pretended that his lust was actually love. That would go deeper in verse 41 to Esau's hatred. Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing. Hated. Then in verse 42, Jacob's response was that of fear. He's got to run for his life. Rebekah hears the words that Esau says. Verse 42, she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said unto him, Behold, thy brother Esau is touching thee, doth comfort himself, purposing to kill thee. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise and flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran. Fear. So he runs away, and lastly, the last result is in verse 44. Actually, sorry, verse 45 where it describes Esau's anger as fury. Grief of mind, spiritual blindness, deceit, jealousy, jealousy, worldly sorrow, hatred, fear, anger. All because Esau loved, or sorry, all because Isaac loved his son. But he loved his son for the wrong reason. He loved his son because he loved himself. And if we're not careful, our own love can be the same way. We look at ourselves and say, hey, I'm doing what's right. I'm loving others. I'm loving my children. I'm loving my family. But if it's not love for the right reason, it's not really love. And there's consequences as a result. But I want to leave things on an encouraging note tonight. So lastly, let's look at Isaac's love contrasted. Because if we're honest, and if we take a hard look at ourselves, Isaac's love is more common in our own lives than we would care, we would like to admit. I could say that about myself. 
Isaac's love is more common in my own life, in my own heart, than I would be wanting to admit to you. But just like our Heavenly Father is our only perfect example in parenting, and I think that's one of the reasons why we don't have perfect you know, family templates or mother-father templates in the Bible, I think part of the reason for that is God knew that there would be, uh, that there would be multitudes of, of books written and, and seminars posted on, and with their name all over it, plastered all over. Here's how you be a such-and-such parent, you know. But instead, he left us the perfect example. And as parents, our example that we look to, we don't really have a human template, but we do have a heavenly template. We ought to treat and raise our children the way the Father treats and raises us as his children. So just like he is the perfect example in parenting, he's also the perfect example of love. He is love. He doesn't just exemplify love. This is who he is. And he defines being love himself. He defines what actual love is. So we discern what love is not by looking at the world and by people who who say they love this or say they love that or love this person. No, love is as God defines it because that's who he is. That's part of his nature. You're familiar with this passage, but let's go ahead and turn there anyway. Ephesians chapter 5. He is our perfect example of love. His love is the real thing. It is the gold standard. It is what we hold up our love to, compare our love to, and we see that many times our love sort of pales in comparison. Our love is exposed for what it often, too often, is. And that is just a cover for our own fleshly desires. Look at Ephesians 5.25. Like I said, you're familiar with this, but we're told husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Paul raises the love of Christ and he says, think about how Christ loved the church. And immediately our minds go to the cross and that is an adequate I mean, that, that, that is what he's referring to. But he does say the church. What is the church? Well, the church that Jesus started was, was with the disciples, those early leaders. Jesus gave three years of his life to those men, teaching them, training them, spending time with them, putting up with their shenanigans, being patient with them when they, would, they could not understand what he clearly states. Like, how, how do you not get the fact, like, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die, and I'm going to, 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 to raise again. And they're like, we don't get it. The patience that he shows, bringing them along, preparing them, molding them, That's his love. And then, of course, going to the cross for them while they fled from him and denied him in the process. What love. Such love. This is the kind of love that we ought to strive to have. Verse 28 says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. 
For no man ever yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. God cares for us. And this is the kind of love, the the selfless kind of love, rather than the selfish kind of love that we naturally tend to show. And and you don't have to think very hard. Just, 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 Just transport your mind out from this place to the world. And what does the world describe as love? What is that? It is love... Mas- or is lust, sorry, lust masquerading as love. It's lust with the mask on it. See, I love this person. I can't help who I love, right? No, what's happening most of the time, if not all the time, is it's just lust with a, with a mask on. We can see that. But yet, if we look carefully enough, we can see that in our own lives. Notice what we're called to. You're there in Ephesians 5. Look in verse 2. We are called to walk in love, Ephesians 5.2, as Christ also loved us and hath given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. We're to walk in love, and the kind of love we're to walk in is not the self-serving, selfish love. It is the selfless love of Christ who gave himself for us. I don't love my children for the affection that they give me. I don't love my children for the fulfillment of of, of my dreams that they provide for me. I don't love my children because, uh, you know, because I'm going to be able to reproduce me in them. They're going to be just like me and I'm going to be able to to, to enjoy all the same hobbies that I enjoy. They're going to enjoy. They're going to look just like me and all that is is Lust that we can explain away and we can put on the fancy paint of love. We can do that. But that's not the kind of love that Christ calls us to. And I'll add this, that this kind of love is impossible without being born again. This is what the Apostle John is talking about in 1 John. When he says that everyone that loveth is born of God. Hmm, That verse seems to indicate that Christ-like love, non-selfish love, is only possible when you are born of God. Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. This kind of love is impossible without Christ and, and the, the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It won't happen. But if we're in coast mode, if we're in flesh mode, the kind of love that will most often come out of that will be Isaac's kind of love. And that kind of love leaves an awful lot of destruction in its path. So I want to encourage you tonight to set your, your loves. What do you love? Set those loves in, and put them in front of the mirror. And let God search those loves. Are, are those, those people that you love, is that really because it's Christ-like love? 
Or is that self-serving love? I wonder if this is one of the reasons why God just doesn't introduce difficult people into our lives so that we can actually see what kind of love. You know, because they're the ones that they, they, they test the love, they strain the love, they push the love. And we say, I can't do this anymore. You're right, you can't. Because this is supernatural kind of love. It's the love that only the Spirit of God can work in you. Is your love just a cover for your lust? And lust is one of those things in the Christian life, it just pops up everywhere. We are either walking in the Spirit moment by moment, or we are walking in the flesh or walking in our lusts, one or the other. And it just, it's there. It's what our flesh produces. Without God's Word, without the mirror, to hold up to say, okay, let me evaluate myself. We're going to wind up tending towards, we're going to trend in the direction of living for our flesh and living for our lusts. What kind of love do you have? Is it selfish love, like Isaac's love? Or is it selfless love, the kind of love that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ? I encourage you tonight to allow God to examine your heart. And if there's some changes that need to be made that you will ask God for His help. I need to, I need to love my children the way, the way you want me to love them. I need to love some people in my life the way you want me to love them. And I cannot do that without your help.